Well, hello. Uh, welcome to today's in-service podcast series event, uh, Service Supply Chain Trends for 2024, featuring Lance Johnson from, from Baxter Planning. Uh, really excited to, to welcome Lance to the discussion. Uh, thank you for joining uh, today's uh, discussion. Uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy uh, our hour together. Um, and um, we're trying to create a, a little bit of a sort of back and forth inside these discussions. Um, so we welcome our listening audience to become our participating audience. So if you're listening to us on LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn Live, uh, we welcome you to comment and submit questions to Lance uh, via LinkedIn. Uh, if you're on some other social channel, uh, we are highly responsive, whether it be X or Facebook or YouTube or what have you. Um, we're, we're here to uh, create as interactive of, a, of an environment as we possibly can. And, and this topic here is, is really, really interesting from my standpoint. Um, you know, the, the topic of uh, aftermarket service parts, it, we, we're kind of highlighting as one of eight significant and critical trends uh, in the 2024 period. And, and, and rightfully so, because when we asked service leaders in a recent research effort, 20% uh, or one in five indicated that greater than 30% of unsuccessful field visits that are not completed on the first visit are due to the unavailability of parts, right? So it's a critical source in terms of customer experience, in terms of asset uptime and utilization, and, and all the good things that we talk about. And, and you know, it, it, you know we, we've been sort of looking at supply chain trends from a number of different perspectives, whether it's planning and forecasting, um, we're going to talk about that element in inside today's discussion. I think Lance is going to talk to us a little bit about and introduce us to demand shaping, which is a really cool topic that we had a, a conversation about planning. We'll get into some warehousing and supply chain network stuff. We'll get into logistics and last mile. We'll get into the circular economy, some of the reverse and, and replenishment and returns opportunities using the dirty core to reproduce and, and, and uh, create... Um, available parts to, to support capacity. And, and then we'll look at how, how leading supply chain organizations are doing all of the above in a socially responsible manner. So some of the social impact of supply chain and, and all the good things there. You know, and I was looking at a recent article The Economist published where they were warning their audience not to be fooled by the popular China plus one trend, where, you know, global supply chains were aimed to establish alternative sourcing strategies and looking at shorter, more diversified supply chains, onshoring, nearshoring, borrowing, you know, uh, aftermarket borrowing from forward supply chains, all these things are sort of happening and, and were happening at the height of the pandemic. Um, but they, they actually pointed to a study conducted by the Bank for International Settlements, which showed that supply chains are actually growing longer and more complicated. And so we're gonna look at, you know, some of the ways that you can create visibility, agility, and I, I got to tell you, I'm extremely excited to be joined by Lance Johnson, Chief Supply Chain Officer of Baxter Planning. I'll pause here to warmly introduce Lance. And, you know, Lance, I know you well, uh, but our listening audience, our, hopefully our participating audience, doesn't yet. So maybe we could start off with an introduction to yourself, and, and then we could get into the organization and some of the things that you all are doing. Yep, absolutely. So thank you for having me on, John. I really do appreciate that. Um, and having the opportunity to talk to the audience and hopefully we can have some good conversation going back and forth. Um, I've been in the aftermarket supply chain actually now for about 24 years. Um, started back in this specific area in 1999 with Sun Microsystems. 
um, was able to kind of cut my teeth there and grow up there and actually became the global materials manager for Sun. You know, having to deliver that two-hour support system uptime being critical, you know, eBay being down, not a good thing, right? <laughs> um, and then from there, actually transitioned um, from there to a company called Intercoms, where um, we were actually building software, providing services, doing analytics, and just challenging the forefront of where do we need to go. Um, Intercoms was purchased two years ago by Baxter Planning. So I've spent the last two years at Baxter um, adopting onto profit and the various things we're doing there and just experiencing the growth we're having here and helping our customers solve their supply chain issues and problems. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, well a warm welcome to you, Lance. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into this topic, uh, which is really important as we've highlighted. And, and your experience being both a practitioner, but also innovating and helping organizations innovate around their supply chain practices is going to serve our audience uh, really well today. For our audience, I just want to remind you um, that today's session is recorded. Um, it will be accessible in an on-demand fashion. You can access it at the Service Council's website. Baxter Planning will have it available as well, I believe. Um, it's available on whatever podcast channel you subscribe to, and you can find it on LinkedIn, too, as a revisit. So uh, sure, it's a, a good resource, and if you care to share it with your colleagues, we encourage you to do so. So, Lance, we just got to know you. Uh, maybe we could get to know Baxter Planning a little bit further. What? Tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day role being the chief supply chain officer, some of the customers that you're working with, and you know a little bit more about what Baxter Planning does for, for its customers. Yep. Um, so at Baxter Planning, serving as the chief supply chain officer, I basically serve as a strategic advisor to both our customers and our prospects. Um, in doing that, it's looking at their supply chain problems and seeing what can be done to solve them. Um, a lot of times what we're able to do is to bring our Baxter Predict platform to bear and help them with visibility, help them with analytics and planning of hardware and how their network should be designed. Um, but also one of the things I enjoy about my role um, with my 24 years of experience, I've met a lot of other people, right? Whether they're in the repair industry or different aspects. So also being able to bring those talents to bear and those opportunities to bear, if it's not something that Baxter can help them directly with, I have the leverage to be able to go ahead and reach outside of into my network and bring those people in to try to help. So sometimes just connecting people together, it's about how do we move the industry forward and bring that benefit to the industry. If Baxter can help directly, that's fantastic. That's what we want to do. But sometimes there's skills that we don't have and other people have, and we use the, we leverage that also. Outstanding. Outstanding. If I could, you know, just kind of circle back to your career in supply chain, right? You cut your teeth at Sun Microsystems and then went to Intercoms and now Baxter Planning. It's a rewarding career that you've had. Um, and if we could just kind of double down on that career path, supply chain, just in general, it's a pretty cool career, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed myself in supply chain. I actually started off in electrical engineering. Um, I, I tell people, basically, I was put in a closet to do design work, started at Hughes Aircraft Company designing radar systems. <laughs> and I quickly got to, oh, I cannot do this forever, right? <laughs> sure. um, from there, I it was in the time of TQM. This is, you know, early 90s. Yeah. Um, so TQM and Six Sigma 
and got heavily involved in that. And then what I found was, as I took that knowledge and moved into the supply chain, I had a, I had a tool belt that I could use to really adapt and apply it into the supply chain. The thing that's interesting to me about the supply chain is every day we come in, it's a different problem, a different struggle, a different issue. Um, so now being able to take that from applying that to one company and being able to use that with multiple companies has just been an awesome opportunity. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Good, good advocacy for the supply chain career and, and for those considering a, a career in, in, in supply chain. Uh, quite rewarding. And, and we've actually done some research to, to show you how rewarding that can be. So we have some some research published on our website re regarding career paths uh, that uh, is available to our community. Let's get into the topic, okay? Supply chain trends. That's a wide-ranging topic, and there's so many things that kind of spiderweb off of that. But let's start with, you know, the the climate that we've navigated, right, over the last three to five years, the pandemic, the the chip shortage, the craziness. It isn't stopping, by the way. Um, the political okay. climate is intensifying. Uh, it, the, the macroeconomic and geopolitical stuff that's happening around the globe is really quite wild right now. Uh, and, and we think that, you know, the turbulence is going to continue and the intensifying of supply chains could could really heighten this coming year. How are you and your team handling the turbulence? What are you hearing from customers? How are they preparing for the potential of turbulence in 2024? Yeah. So I, when I look at the supply chain and aftermarket services, to me forever, we've been in the insurance business, right? Yeah. Um, insurance business from the standpoint of how do we guarantee uptime yeah. for the lowest dollar amount possible? And how do we balance the risk between the two? I think some of the, the benefits that we've seen in the past has been maybe those times haven't been as turbulent, right? And I think of recent things with you can start with the war in Russia and, and Ukraine or you can go to COVID, um, the new battles that are taking place. These are things that are just really shut at shutting things down, right? Um, so it used to be people wanted to have multiple suppliers, but they started going single source. And what happens when that single source isn't available? So I think it's taking us back to some of our basics and our roots of saying, how do we take risk out of the supply chain and ensure we're delivering what we need to to our customer base? And I think that's some of the lessons that are being learned and it's causing people to do things different. Maybe paying a few extra dollars and reducing that transportation distance is okay. And, and those are business decisions people are now starting to go back to and starting to make. I got to tell you, I, I love this quote, Lance. As supply chain experts, we're in the insurance business. That That's one of the one of the takeaways here that I think uh, our, our audience is going to really benefit from and, and a really, really interesting topic that you bring there. Um, so kudos to you on that comment. Uh, really yeah. Cool. And because and just to double down on that just a little bit, um, I, you know, I listened to the whole logic um, yeah. webinar that you guys just did a couple of yeah, weeks sure. back. Sure. And, you know, there was a conversation in there about inventory terms. And I think in the supply chain business that I've been a part of, there's two pieces of our business. Right. There's the high volume side and we're moving things really quickly and it's really turns driven. Yeah. But there's this other side that it's a zero one decision. Yeah. It, and in some cases, it's, do I, am I going to stock one in the world? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or am I going to stock zero in the world? And, yeah. and how those decisions get made from a business perspective to meet our customer need, to protect our <clears throat> brand, 
those are the decisions that we're making every day and we have to be able to make both and they're different you know um we asked supply chain leaders in our state of the market report last last uh, q1 if you will february march and april we executed the, the research effort we had about 150 executives that responded and we asked them you know how is your uh, sourcing strategy evolving what are the most commonly deploy deployed sourcing uh, efforts that you have as an organization. Insourcing was the number one at just shy of 40%, uh, followed by outsourcing uh, offshore, followed by outsourcing onshore, followed by outsourcing nearshore, uh, and then low cost country sourcing and vertical integration, looking at borrowing from other industry uh, affiliates, if you will. Mm -hmm. What are you hearing from a sourcing perspective in terms of building that agility, that safety insurance net, if you will, for, you know, the the, the sourcing that's become quite complicated? Yeah. And, and I think in that complication, you know, this whole thing of asking the question why, asking the question yeah. why five, six, seven times, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know that there's any one right answer for anyone. Um if there's a right answer out there for everyone right now, it's that single source causes a lot of pain. Yeah. And um, to some degree, yeah. I'm going to tell you the whole insourcing piece. I challenge a little bit if that's a fallacy, because the same problems that your supplier was having, you're going to have those same sourcing problems. It's not like having an insource salt makes all of that go away. Sure. You're just closer to the problem and understand the problem and know why you're not getting that raw material, know why you're not getting that chip or whatever. But um, you're just going to take the problems that your supplier was having and move them to you. And you yeah. have to solve the same ones. So the question becomes, who's best at solving those problems? And why did those really occur? And how can you get to the true root of solving the problem? And not just assume doing it yourself makes it easier. Because Absolutely. maybe there's somebody out there that's more of an expert than you are. Love it. Love it. And, and we actually asked, what are the biggest problems in terms of the biggest challenges currently facing in that same research effort that I referenced? And, and the top four were poor visibility into parts available across the service supply chain, uh, poor integration of the parts within the service, the overall service business, so operations, workforce management, et cetera, increased inventory of obsolete parts and supporting a greater variety of parts needed. If I could, could I dig in on each one of those responses? Because I think it's really interesting. So how can supply chain leaders create greater visibility into parts across the network? Number one issue. Yep. So as they're trying to create that visibility, a big piece of it is data. And we make business decisions every day that minimize that data or reduce access to that data. Also, as we leverage and we're signing contracts with other vendors, we need to be more aggressive about what data and information is going to transfer back and forth up front in that contracting process and not ask for it after the fact and say, oh, by the way, I now need this, right? So I think of something that's just moving to 3PLs or out to UPS, who's one of our um, strategic partners that we have. Having access to that data so that we can create that visibility so you actually know where those parts are is just really critical. Because yeah. now that you have that data available, now you have technology. Now, data is only one piece of it. You have to be able to turn data into knowledge. So now that you have that data and having the ability to understand, okay, something isn't flowing properly in my supply chain, where are those gaps or where are those milestones or gates, whatever you want to set up, that knows something isn't right. 
And now turning that into knowledge where you can actually start to make business decisions of, I see this is going to be late. Can I source it from somewhere else and still get it there on time? And having that done in an automated fashion just brings significant benefits to the supply chain. And you can't look across all that data as an individual. You have to have systems behind it to use that data. But to me, that's how you start to layer that on. And so sometimes that's not a short-term decision. That's something that's going to take you a year, two years, three years to work your way through. But you have to have that vision of where you want to go and the value that that's going to drive for your business. And I promise to our listening audience, I, I was going to do it now, but I'm going to wait. We will get to AI. We will get to AI. <laughs> so stay tuned. Uh, let's get into the second area. So why there still seems to be a silo. So the number two issue being the poor integration of the service supply chain business into the overall service business, right? In, in terms of operations, it still seems like there's a silo that exists between these two things where yeah. triage and diagnosis is not connected in terms of people, parts, process, and data, right? It's, you know, oftentimes the part is like the, the, the thing that's left off, it feels like. Um, so, and I referenced that quote at the top of the, the hour here that, um, 20%, one in five service leaders cite that greater than 30% of their unsuccessful, uh, field visits in terms of not first time, not achieving first time fix rate is caused by unavailable parts. So why, 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 and where's this disconnect? How come we haven't solved this siloed nature of these two lines of business? Yeah. So I have a couple answers to this. Um, one, the first thing that came to my mind was this, and I'm actually seeing it in businesses we're working with today. The goals and objectives are not the same. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? So when you are talking to field engineers and the people that are feet on the street, and at the end of the day, the face to your customers, they're driven by customer satisfaction. They're driven by all 100% of the time. I want the part available and having it available to meet my customer need and to do that service call. Yeah. Then you go back into the supply chain organization and you're going to hear, oh, we're only expected to have that part 95% of the time, 90% of the time. So we've already created a disconnect. Yeah. They want 99 plus, and you're being given a budget to only deliver 90, 95%. Yeah. So we already have a conflict, and we're nobody's done anything yet. The conflict already exists, right? Yep. So it's how do you create a better expectation and vision between the two organizations so we're all trying to deliver the same thing? Interesting. Right. Real interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because so now you have, so now from a business perspective, supply chain is getting challenged. I want to take X million dollars out of my supply chain. And you try to do that for free as much as you can with no impact. At the end of the day, it has some level of impact to part availability, right? Mm-hmm. You aren't yep. doing everything wrong and just wasting money. There's some impact. Yep. But now, how is the field engineering organization? prepare to face the customer and say, this is going to be delayed. How do you improve that communication? And if you're going to be down for a part and not have a part, how do you ensure you deliver that? Maybe not that day, but it's available the next day. Sure. You shorten the lead times. And so how you, how you stock your entire supply chain so that you can reduce that overall period in downtime is also critical. Right? Absolutely, and so absolutely. It's it's balancing those things together 
to actually be able to meet the overall objective. Um, the other piece that came to mind is, is when you look at the field organization, they're working in a very local part of their business. Mm -hmm. So as a corporation, you prioritize customers. Not all customers are equal, right? But to that field engineer, they can be working with a mom and pop shop and they are the most important person in the world. Yeah. So they're going to want to prioritize the part for their customer. But that's not always the business decision. But to me, that's just some of the inherent conflict that exists in our business and what we're trying to deliver. Outstanding. Yeah, yeah. Those are some great points you make. And I'm, we're going to get back to the slippery slope in terms of empowering that front line, in terms of visibility and ordering and how that can drive inflated truck stock and Man, that can get out of hand. So we're gonna. I'm gonna get your opinion on that in a little bit. Yeah. But I want to combine combine the the third and fourth response um, in terms of increase obsolete parts and in increase complexity uh, of of product that's driving up supply chain, inflating supply chain, because estimates, roughly speaking, to carry inventory somewhere in the twenty to thirty percent of parts uh, cost is the, the carrying cost to actually house them and inventory them. Who owns it? Who's taking on that burden? That's another uh, another debate, another discussion we could probably have. But what are you seeing as a like a commonly deployed strategy to kind of balance that out and to address that end of life process of getting those obsolete parts off the shelf and you know uh, the the complexity of you know the the SKU list, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting. To me, this is just an interesting area. Um, when I look at managing the supply chain, a lot of people want to spend their time in the sustaining phase of the business, right? Mm. That's usually when everything's kind of calm and we're running at a steady state. Yeah, I think there's two buys that get made that are the most critical buys. One is the MPI buy and how you start your new product introduction and how you stock the field to drive that customer satisfaction. When you kind of don't know how the product is really going to react up front. And I've seen situations where people make MPI buys and they buy more at MPI than they're going to need for the life of the product. So you yeah. absolutely want to avoid that. But how do you drive the balance? The second critical buy is the one you're talking about right now. And that's end of life. Um, one of the people we've worked with and, you know, um, actually, I think she's been on stage with you guys, Shannon Beecher. Yeah. Um, she goes, you know, the truth of the matter is every part I need in the future is already out in the field. It's yeah. how do I use that material. So we've worked with people in the past, talked about things such as harvesting and how can you minimize that last time by? Another big key component to that is, and that's part of what we call demand shaping. Another key aspect is from a forecasting perspective, how can I forecast better? How did I forecast up in the past and how can I improve that going forward? And how can I now possibly start using new technology, which you mentioned a little while ago, such as AI and ML, to create a better forecast? So now if I have a more accurate forecast going forward, if I improve the sources of my material that I'm using, if from an engineering perspective, I'm designing my pro product in such a way, I have follow-on products that go that help me to delay that into life by, I can start driving a strategy that allows me to get better usage out of my material over time and kind of keep things moving forward without having to invest significant dollars up front in that last time buy, which then becomes obsolete inventory. Um, another component of that to me is technology shifts. It's probably one of the nightmares in my life where we went from 
CRT monitors to LED monitors and flat screens. Understanding how technology impacts that is something that I think gets underestimated over time and people have to spend more time really investigating and studying. Yeah, no, great, great points, Lance. And uh, Shannon Beecher, uh, the reference here is uh, the Vice President of Service Supply Chain for IBM, a mutual partner of Baxter Planning and the Service Council. Shannon's been a, a tremendous add to our advisory board, delivered a keynote this year at our symposium. And uh, she is just a, a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I had the opportunity to spend some time with her over dinner and I just kept learning the whole day. So uh, <laughs> Shannon is outstanding. And, and you referenced uh, NPI, new product introduction, and the whole design for supportability process. We had a great podcast uh, featuring Thomas Maiello from Varian Medical talking about uh, new product in introduction and the whole design for supportability and how does data fuel that. And uh, just uh, referencing another resource relatable to our discussion here, uh, shout out to Thomas Maiello, uh, another board member who did a, a great job in that podcast. Um, Let's get into something that you just mentioned that I want to learn more about, which is demand shaping, right? Uh, obviously, we've heard of planning and forecasting. Demand shaping was something a little bit new to me. I've heard it, but I didn't really dig in on it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what, what that is for our audience? Yeah. So when, when I use the term demand shaping, we can become victims of our future, right? And just respond to what's happening to us. The other thing we can try to do is to create our future and create our path. Yeah. So if you think about it, whatever your product is, and you, as you're distributing that product, how I move my customer base forward onto my next generation product mm -hmm. and how I start to centralize demand becomes a critical part of how I can optimize my business. Um, a previous company um, we were working with, an example of that was they knew who early adopters were in their business. So they knew where they could go pull material back from because that other company was going to be an earlier adopter of their new product. So they started to rely on the fact, I can pull this much end-of-life material out of the field. I can go ahead and run it through my repair process to make it as good as new. So now I can use that as part of my end-of-life buy material. So how I start to manage my demand and move my demand forward and minimize it. And there's two pieces that happen there, right? When I pull that inventory out of the field, I've lowered demand for the product because that's no longer in my run rate of my failure rate that I'm going to have going forward. And now I have created that as supply that I can use to feed the ones that are still there. So now by doing that, what happens if all of a sudden you could take 25%, 50% of that last time buy that you normally did, and you started to count on material that you're able to pull out of the field? You're just saving resources and by driving that way. Instead of every time a customer deinstalls their equipment, it just ends up in a scrapyard somewhere, a recycling plant. So how can you continue to get usage out of that inventory, which basically is shrinking your install base for your older products, while you're also increasing demand for your new products and your next generation moving forward. And as you drive that cycle overall, you're just building in also your customers still using your product and moving forward with you instead of looking out in the market for other things. 
Outstanding. Outstanding talk. Um, very interesting. I, I think we could probably have a follow-up podcast just on demand shaping. <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe we'll have to do that, take this show on the road. Let, let's get into the, the, the socially responsible and in, in the, the, the footprint issues in terms of supply chain practices, right? So according to uh, McKinsey and company, supply chains account for over 90% of a company's environmental impact. Um, and according to an adjacent study by uh, the consumer research firm Nielsen, almost half of consumers in the U.S. would change their purchasing habits based on uh, environmental concerns in terms of the practices of those suppliers that they get their products, goods, and services from. How important do you believe responsible and sustainable practices are to supply chains? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, you know, in place, I think it starts, though, and we talked about this a little bit. We talked about design for serviceability, but there's also a design for environment also that takes place up front. Right. So the types of CRT monitors that I mentioned earlier, a great example of sure. bad for the environment. Right. Yep. Yep. So how we design up front. The other thing that I think that's starting to come into design is how is that material reclaimable at the end? Right. Yeah. So even when we're completely done with it, how can that material be reclaimed and reused in a proactive manner? Yeah. So those are things outside of the day to day supply chain. But now once you get into the supply chain itself, it's how do we become as efficient as possible to minimize the material required? So an example that I would have there would be, you know, a lot of times people are looking for fast delivery of product. Yeah. But it's not really driving their uptime. It's just, hey, I need same-day delivery. Well, yeah. is your equipment truly down? Or if you get this in a week, it's okay. Yeah. Everything we do to minimize that amount of material that's required day-to-day -to, -day to support that overall business is helping that environment. This other piece of reclaiming the material in the whole circular economy. You know, I've kind of been in the repair business since, you know, the 90s. Yeah. That, that's been part of what we've been trying to do anyway. But now, as we become more and more efficient at that, as we're able to pull that material back, as we have better visibility of what customers actually have and what's reusable and what we can pull back, can we drive even more and more material into that network, yeah. which reduces last time by, makes us more efficient, makes yep. us more profitable, helps the environment. It's, it becomes a conscious focus that we have now. That I think we've been doing for a long time, but now we want to do more of it. And we want to expand it into areas that maybe we haven't used it in the past. Yeah, you bring up a really uh, interesting point, the remanufacturing side of things and the circular nature of supply chain that I wanted to get to next. And, you know, I uh, referenced a, a quote uh, and some data during my opening statements at our symposium, Smarter Services Symposium in Chicago, which... Baxter Planning was a, a key sponsor of and, and had the benefit of uh, featuring many of your customers, including Shannon and others uh, across the, uh, the, the keynote uh, roster, if you will. But I mentioned how BMW, right, is an organization who's gotten really predictive, you know, subscription based in its economy and, and, and in terms of how it offers services, some failure moments, some good you know, so, you know, the heated seats thing was a failure moment, of course. Um, but I, I referenced uh, some data re relating to the production of goods, uh, whether they be aftermarket sales uh, uh, parts, uh, after sales parts, or if they were um, 
the new shipped uh, vehicles. And it's estimated that new shipped vehicles uh, have a profit margin of somewhere in the 10 to 12% range, whereas their aftermarket parts are somewhere in the 50 to 65% range. So a tremendous profit opportunity. Uh, and so the circular economy is becoming more and more common uh, as we see it in terms of using the dirty core to reproduce, refurbish, uh, recertify, redistribute, so on and so forth. What are your customers sharing with you in terms of that profit opportunity and the importance of sort of that circularity to the supply chain? Yeah, and it's, it's different by industry, but I'll give yeah. just a general term. Yeah. Normally, the cost of a part new versus repaired, you probably only spend about 33% for that repaired part. Wow. Maybe if you bring in all the costs, transportation, a little bit increase in quality failures, maybe you get up into the 45, 50% cost range. But you're talking about a significant increase in value from, hey, $100 to ship you a new one, $50 to ship you a completely refurbished unit. Yeah. So the cost opportunities from that, the value from that is significant. And, and that's not even getting into the whole social impacts of that, right? Um, so is there benefit out of being able to pull product back? And companies, to me, doing the analytics to understand where the value and the breakpoint is yeah. to bring stuff back. We have one customer that we've worked with that any part over $100, they want to pull back into the organization, repair it, reuse it, take the next steps. But to me, that's the more you can... Um, look forward and do the analytics to ensure where you can add value. There's definitely parts out there. Is it worth bringing them back? Can you drive the quality from a repair process that you need to deliver? You need a new part. But understanding the difference from where it's absolutely required to be new versus, hey, we can drive value out of getting it from a repair perspective, um, to me, is just a focus activity that companies need to do. Outstanding. Outstanding. Um, let's let's circle back to the the integration of process workflows, and I just want to briefly encourage our listening audience: if you have reactions or uh, comments or questions for Lance, uh, please feel free to submit those. We'll try and build them into our discussion. But let, let's go back to that integration of process workflows because you know I was looking at the Voice of the Field Service Engineer survey that we conduct um, annually, and this year we had over three thousand engineer responses. And the number one, three, and five requested capability, not this year, but last year, um, was inventory visibility, parts ordering, and the ability to transfer parts from technician to technician. Um, some of those uh, key asks have remained, right? The inventory visibility and the parts ordering uh, as uh, among the top uh, desired uh, capabilities uh, from field service engineers. Um, above, you know, things like service manuals and knowledge base articles and all the other things to make them effective. This is a tricky one, though, right? Because if we load up our front line with an abundance of parts, we have that heavy burden of inventory expense. But if we underserve them, then perhaps there's a customer sat issue in terms of throughput and delivery. So you got to be really predictive, proactive in your triage and diagnosis so that we don't have to have this inflated truck stock inventory um, and so that you have just the right balance and mix. But what what are you, how does demand shaping, some of the things we've talked about play into this in terms of not over inflating our truck stock inventory, but not under delivering 
right? That, yeah. That's kind of a tricky one. Yeah, and, and so I'm going to come back to how we set customer expectations for things Yeah, is an important piece of this. Um, you know, if we go to automotive as an example, if I go in and get an oil change, I expect to get that in the next hour and get my oil change and get out. Yep. If I need a transmission, even though that's a hard failure, I understand the fact that I'm going to wait a week before my transmission transmission is going to be fixed. Yeah. And if downtime for that critical part is unacceptable, right? Um, here I am, you know, it's Amazon Web Services or something of that nature. Yeah. I can't be down. It's it's automatic uptime. And how do you design that in from an engineering technology perspective versus always having those parts available? Um, and so to me, driving that balance and having that right expectation. Um, when I've talked to field engineers in the past, part of it is they want that knowledge just to be able to communicate with their customer better. Yeah. They, they don't want to stand in front of the customer saying, I do not know when I'm going to have this part. It's not necessarily that they have to have it right there on their truck, but being able to tell that customer, hey, I'll be there on Monday might be good enough. But if they have visibility of it, they can make that co that commitment with confidence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. knowledge piece to some degree is that ability to be able to speak to someone in con you're going to fail in some people's expectations. So they have unrealistic expectations of you. But if I can speak to confident with confidence and deliver against that consistently. Yeah. It it's just better. I understand you don't have it today and I know you'll be here Monday. It's great. I know you're going to be here because you've always been here on Monday in the past. So to me, that's what builds up. Now, I think there's a negative piece of this because some of this visibility drives bad behavior in the field because people start to hold parts, gather parts. Yeah. Hey, these are a sacred commodity and not everybody has them and I'm going to hold on to the ones I have. <laughs> so it's if everybody's working towards the same objectives and the same goals of what we're trying to deliver, and everybody's going to play fairly together. Yeah. When we talk about some of the trunk stock in the sharing, I find it interesting because as I work with several companies, probably over 15, um, that carry trunk stock, it's interesting to me that a lot of companies, once they put the parts on the truck, they don't know what's there. Yeah. yeah. And, and there is a lack of discipline of when I use a part off my truck, that I communicate to the system that that part's no longer there. I might well, do that once a week, work with one company that did it once a quarter. Yeah, They truly didn't know. Some companies even expense the parts as soon as they put it on the truck. That inventory is no longer even tracked. So those would be things within corporations. And I talked earlier about long-term decisions and how you collect data and what data you're going to have. You have to make, you as a business, you have to make, the decision of what's the right thing for your business and drive that data collection properly so that you can communicate and, and people have visibility of what we're going to share and what's available for everyone's use. That's a great, great, great set of points you make there. I, I love that. This has been a really enjoyable discussion. I want to get into, you know, some of the, 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 the work that you're doing with some of your key customers, right? You, you mentioned the webinar with Hologic. I was, uh, the beneficiary of hosting uh, uh, James Gable uh, last week during a webinar, and James is uh, leading supply chain for Hologic. And 
but you're working with other major brands, you know, in the high tech space and in other medical healthcare and other other industry verticals. Organizations like Dell Technologies, IBM, Becton Dickinson, Stanley Black and Decker, and a lot of other sort of household names, if you will. What what have been some of the learning moments? You are you you strike me as a constant learner, right? So. What have been some of the things you've learned, commonalities across some of these unique industries that are perhaps, you know, an opportunity to cross-pollinate these concepts even further to other industries? What are are some of those learning moments? Yeah, so I think this continuous learning piece is a great point that you have there. Um, Had an opportunity to work with a gentleman from GE Oil and Gas a while back. And it was interesting. The reason he pulled us in is because we were in the high-tech business. And he goes, I want to take some of the disciplines they have in their business and move it over to ours. So one of the things that I've enjoyed is working with the companies that continuously want to improve. And and to me, it's a balance. Sometimes it's let's go improve our customer satisfaction. Let's improve uptime. Whoa, let's cut costs. Let's cut costs. But it's this continuous journey. So companies that set the vision of where they want to go and what they see the future being and starting to put plans and roadmaps in place to go on this journey, right? There's this journey towards AI and ML. There's this journey towards what we call autonomous planning or cognitive planning. Yeah. As we want to go on this journey, we're not going to get there overnight, but it's having a vision of what you think the future could hold for you and starting to march. That vision is going to change over the course of time. And you have this big dream. You're never going to completely accomplish it, right? We talked about last time buys. Have that dream that the last demand that ever comes in, I have the last part to ship against it. We can turn off the lights and we're done with that product line. Well, that's something to aspire to be. But what are the steps that you're going to do and what's causing you not to be able to accomplish that? So as you listed some of those companies, if I were to tell you, what is the common theme between a lot of those companies? The status quo is not good enough. It's what can I do to better align to my corporate objectives and use the new technologies that are coming out to continuously improve over time, to be better? Um, and, And how can I learn from each other, even if it's not in my marketplace? We have to get comfortable with the, it's not invented here mentality and say, hey, there's something we can learn from those that are around us um, and apply that to our day-to-day activity. Um, and to me, that that's the fun part of the job. That's being <laughs> that strategic advisor. It's not always just what I know. It's what I'm learning from everyone else and what others have to share with each other and learn how to apply it to what we do day-to-day. Outstanding. And, and you mentioned uh, GE Oil and Gas. There's a gentleman, uh, Dennis Sadlowski, uh, a business colleague who uh, previously worked in the oil and gas space uh, was the CEO of a um, big firm, and and he r- talks about this concept of outside in, right? The the approach where you can learn from industries that are perhaps not even common in in nature Absolutely. and and draw from them. So that cross pollination of best practice is something that we obviously believe in wholeheartedly. Hey, let's get into um, as we kind of work our way to the finish line here. You know, we, we've talked about some of the landmines and some of the landmines are the intensification of, you know, the geopolitical climate. Uh, we're working our way into an election year in the U.S. 
could markets go into crazy times? Absolutely, right? That that's obviously there. It doesn't always have to be the sky is falling, right? It could be some exciting opportunities. And you mentioned cognitive planning and AI and machine learning. What are some of the things you're excited about? What are some of the other things on the horizon that, you know, the the, the supply chain of 2050, right? What, what's happening in supply chain in the year 2050? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, some of the things that I get really excited about with that, the first one I would go to is a lot of people talk about visibility. And mm-hmm. I don't think visibility is enough. Yeah. Um, Visibility. We can talk about data and say that's step one. Pulling that data together and making it visible to everyone is kind of step two. How we then put controls in place, because the problem with data is you start looking at data, you have so much data, you can't see anything. Yeah. So so how do you put the right controls in place so that a lot of the data just flows through and you start to see the exceptions? Then the next piece is you get so many exceptions, you don't have the workforce to go address all those exceptions. So what can you do from a ML, AI perspective that those exceptions get addressed for you and maybe you just get a report out of what was changed, Yeah. right? A order was expedited. I don't need someone to go expedite an order. It was autom- automatically expedited because of something the system saw. So to me, how we start to take these new technologies that are available to us, you know, chatbots, various things, right? Um, How do we start to apply that to our day-to-day business to allow us to move even faster and make decisions faster? How do we use our workforce that's changing quite a bit to be able to take advantage of those opportunities and kind of think out of the box? To me, that continues to be our opportunity as we move forward. <laughs> That's outstanding. I, I got to tell you, I'm just taking notes here uh, in the spirit of being a constant learner like you, Lance. Uh, some really great nuggets that you're leaving our audience with. So thank you. Some really great comments. Hey, listen, uh, as we close out here today, we've gotten to know you from a business and professional standpoint. Tell us something about yourself personal. What's a passion outside of work? What's something you're looking forward to? Yeah, so so passion for me definitely starts with faith and family. Um, another big piece, though, is I've coached football for 25 years. Oh, wow. Um, so we just finished our high school season. But I don't coach football to coach a sport. To me, it's an opportunity for me to go out and touch 40 to 50 kids at a time and just, you know, be an image, a leader for them to communicate what life can be like and influence how they move forward, influence for them how education is important, how working together as a team is important. You can't do it as an individual. And just teaching them life lessons that they can take back to their families, that they can take back to their day-to-day, their college education, and on to their families in the future. Um, Unfortunately, as I continue to age here, um, I ran into a gentleman that I coached, and it turned out I was now coaching this kid. And that didn't feel very good. I felt really <laughs> old at that moment. But um, but it was just good to see the impact that I'm having. Um, and, you know, I just encourage people. It's one thing just to do our day-to-day activity, but how we impact our general community and drive society forward. We have to participate. We have to be that lending hand. We have to give back because somebody was the roots that gave us something that allows us to contribute to others. And we have to make sure we're feeding that back into the community. 
Ah, services humanity right there. I love it. That's good stuff, Lance. Hey, listen, thanks for sharing some of these tremendous insights. I'm sure our audience loved it. It's a great resource for our listening audience. And uh, for those that are listening, um, this uh, session, today's session will be available for consumption. You can share it with colleagues by visiting the Service Council's website. Baxter Planning will have a copy of it as well. And it'll be on all those different social channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Meta, uh, X, Twitter, YouTube, Spotify, all the other podcast channels you subscribe to, it's available on. So uh, Lance, I want to thank you so much for joining me. We're going to have to do this again. I really enjoyed our time together. Yep. Thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate the opportunity and I hope somebody got something out of today. Outstanding. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks for joining today. Bye now.